what can we implement to support community-like models of caring like that? And how can we introduce safeguards to definitely keep people safe, but still provide enough flexibility for the community to essentially take care of itself? Welcome to SheEO.World, a podcast about redesigning the world. I'm your host, Vicki Saunders. In each episode, you'll hear from SheEO Venture founders, women who are working on the world's to-do list. These innovative business leaders are solving some of the major challenges of our times. Please sit back and be prepared to be inspired. Welcome, Chenny. We're so excited to have you here. Chenny is the founder of Got Care. Thank you for having me. Oh, so excited to have you here. I uh, remember one of the first times we sat down to talk about the work you're doing, and you're like, I'm obsessed with care. How do we care for one another? And I'm like, oh, tell me more. <laughs> I just love that. And so I, I wonder, as we sort of jump right into this, were you always obsessed with care? Is it something that's emerged over time in your life? Is this like a red thread that's been there forever? Mm, that's a great question. Caring for one another is what's helped me get through some of my own trauma as a young child. The lack of caring is also what has sparked <laughs> perhaps some of my frustration with how our systems are. So yeah, so in that way, I feel that how people show up in their relationship to how they care can dramatically have such a big impact on someone else's life that it's worth thinking through how we do it. And I don't think that that many people or that many organizations think about their relationship to caring for others in this deeper way because the ripple effects and the impact of those actions are often really intense. Absolutely. Can we unpack it a little? How people show up in their relationship to caring for customers, family, whatever circle we're in as we're listening to this. Do you want to talk a little bit about caring? What does that word feel like to you? What does it mean? For me, caring is deeply rooted in empathy, which means for me in a very simple way, your ability to step into the shoes of another, your ability to feel what they feel in some small way and to hear what they hear and to understand where that person is coming from, even if you may completely disagree with it to your core, but acknowledging that there is some level of truth and pain in everything that that person is experiencing. And that fundamentally, we all have very similar goals in terms of what we all want as people. It's interesting. It reminds me a little bit of MJ, one of our development guides, when she says, there's always something right in what the other person is saying when you're in discussion. She's always searching for what's right, not as a value judgment of right and wrong, but there's always something that's truth to your point and seeking that out versus going, how could somebody think that way? How could mm -hmm. someone be that way? Right. We're in this moment of time where we're just all being called to build this muscle. I think let's share some of your wisdom around caring. I mean, tell us a little bit about God care. How did that manifest out of it? Colonialism has impacted caring as well. And so what we're trying to do at God Care is we're trying to 
personalize the caring experience for Canadians in the home setting and for the case managers who support these Canadians. The way that we do that is that we not only consider the needs from is called a care plan, which could be like someone needs help with a shower, someone needs help with meal preparation, someone needs medication support, what have you. But we also consider the needs of the person that is receiving that care and the family unit as well. So beyond that immediate person thinking through, well, the family plays a huge role in caring for this person as well. And so we should definitely consider them as a part of planning for what type of service this family is going to receive. This really deep look into what is happening in someone's life before just sending someone to show up at their door is a step that is often missed and leads to all of the craziness that you hear in home care around things like inconsistency or a different person every time and things like that. Well, it's interesting because some of the language we use feels like it creates those conditions to overlook it, right? And so you just use this language, which I wonder about, which is case manager, even just that person as case. And, and that's, that's the jargon we use in the world, right? In this space. Yep, absolutely. That's the title that is provided. Wow. Okay, let's change that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm really fascinated by this. There's a a book that I've read that I often quote, this one part of it anyway, by Scott Belsky called The The Messy Middle, the stuff that we never really talk about. We talk about like the idea and then the execution when it all works, but like what's the messy middle of getting there? One of the things that he says is that if you're not deeply steeped in the the person that you're serving and like really understanding them, your design is always off by like 30%. So it never really works. What you just talked about feels a little bit like the instantiation of making sure that that's right, which is going deep to truly understand all the conditions surrounding the person that you're caring for so that you can get it right. Absolutely. Yeah. And when it's not, it's like so off out of context really for what the person needs. So what is the state of care for people that are home in Canada? What does that look like? Right now? Yeah. Well, so home care is a little complicated right now. So right now, demand for home care is up because Canadians are hearing of serious outbreaks at long-term care facilities. Adult children are starting to go back to work as we enter these different stages of our lockdown. And of course, there's always the constant aging population trends and the uh, demand from that side. At the same time, what's interesting is that the frontline workforce, so in Ontario, they're called PSWs. So that entire population of people, a significant amount of that population has been drained as well from our system. And so there's a few reasons for that. As one example, The Canadian Emergency Relief Benefit, although it's amazing, it definitely has significantly reduced the number of PSWs who are seeking to go back to work. There's also fear about working in a COVID-19 world and what that means. So we're sitting in this very strange place where demand is up and supply is down, especially in our society, people with a level of disability is disproportionately impacted, which are the primary people that we serve. 
as a result, what we're finding is that many Canadians, they can't rely on people that they typically do for daily living due to physical distancing measures and due to a reduction in service from providers. They are also reporting disproportionately higher levels of feelings of loneliness than people who are not disabled. And as well, there has been the introduction of pandemic pay, which has actually led to an increase of the hourly rate almost pretty much across the board. Yet the budget that these folks are approved for hasn't increased. And so what they're left with is they're just left with less care. So there's lots of these complexities going on. On our team, we call them unintended consequences. Certain actions have been taken as a way to address a certain pain point, but it wasn't perhaps considered in terms of a system. And so all of these other impacts have uh, trickled through, especially home care, because home care is often a lower priority in the healthcare chain than other avenues. So COVID introduces all of these other crazy pressures, obviously, on something that was already Mm -hmm. in trouble. Yep. What were the trends around home care and aging before that make this a greater and greater challenge every week? In order to really address the home care challenge, we have to address the frontline worker challenge. Even before COVID, there's the Ontario College Association that graduates PSWs every year, and they were reporting for every 7,000 PSWs who are trained every year, 9,000 leave the industry. And so I think that just speaks to the fact that we haven't done a very good job in caring for people who care for others and designing that job to be one that is sustainable, that is actually a career and all of that. So that means things like increasing their pay. It means things like longer shifts. It means things like less travel between appointments when they see families. And just also, you know, things like uh, feeling like they are acknowledged and that their work is, is appreciated. All of these basic things, I think, are often missing. So yeah, so that's, those are the types of things that we're trying to address by creating a better working condition for PSWs. Because fundamentally, what we believe is if we can stabilize this workforce, then we have a chance at stabilizing home care. But until that happens, then it's just Band-Aid after Band-Aid after Band-Aid. Yeah, and I think COVID has just shown the cracks in home care even more. So tell us about Got Care and why this is the answer or an answer. Yeah, it is definitely a answer. So in terms of how Got Care is different, we are a family-directed and family-managed service, which means shifting the locus of control in terms of managing and making decisions around the care from an external entity into the family, especially for people who have chronic illness or chronic disability. They've had to manage this their entire lives. You know, a nurse to come in for 10 minutes and say that they know more than this person about their own care experience is not accurate. And really that person, you know, knows how they want to be showered, knows how they want to, you know, all of these different things that they have to be, that have to be done that are quite intimate in nature. They all know how they want that 
to be completed. And so what we're trying to do is we're trying to provide that family with complete flexibility to their care at the same time, making sure that they're safe. And so we implement various different technologies and we have different tools that both the family and the frontline worker use when they're in the home as safeguards, but otherwise the family is completely in control of the direction of their care. So can you share a story of how, you know, like a before and after around a family that had sort of been struggling to get the kind of care they wanted and then how you solved for that and some feedback on it? Did you take us on a bit of a user journey? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, I think one story really speaks out to me, which is right before actually the Shio Summit, there was this one referral that we received for a woman who lives on a reserve. And she is your classic case of home care that people or agencies typically don't want. And so what happened was she had a catastrophic injury, meaning something severely bad happened to her. She had two young kids. She was deemed a victim of domestic abuse. She was living in a shelter on a reserve or near a reserve. And so typically those are just conditions that are really difficult to service. So someone like her might go for weeks without care. What can happen for the role of the case managers who's trying to locate care right now is often they're calling multiple agencies and their reported experience is that I don't even get a call back for weeks sometimes, especially again around these difficult to service geographies. And so really in terms of what's happening for people in those types of situations in more rural geographies is they're just simply not receiving care. It's actually reported in Ontario that some of these more rural geographies, only 37% of people who are already approved for care are getting it. There's so many, so many factors that feed into that. And so for us, through our network of over 13,000 frontline workers in Ontario, we were actually able to not only find a match for her in terms of what she needed from a health standpoint, but we also found someone who was also an Indigenous woman and someone who lived down the street from the shelter. Wow, that's unbelievable. Yeah, and there's, there's a lot of magic in that in terms of there's community, there's identity, there's all of these other things that are really challenging to perhaps put on like a report or uh, something that you write about a, a home care appointment, right? Like it's hard to describe that in words in terms of, hey, I have someone from my own communities who's servicing me, someone who looks like me and someone who I feel comfortable and safe with. It seems so basic, <laughs> yet it can be so hard to find. And it's so beautiful because it's, yeah, oh, wow. I can feel that difference. We've talked a little bit in the past about the complexity of these challenges because every single human is a complex system in themselves. <laughs> and then you plug that into more complex systems and put us all in relationship together. As you're sort of looking at the state of the field, as it were, that you're focused on. So one thing you talk about is we need to actually stabilize workers before we can actually get to the work. I wonder what other challenges you're seeing in 
I feel so weird even saying these words, servicing clients and mm-hmm. customers. It's just like all the language is so gross to me it's, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> There's not many good words. <laughs> yeah. It's just so crazy. So in caring for people that need support and creating the conditions for them to thrive, can we talk a little bit about the care workers and some of the struggles that they face that aren't really built into keeping them healthy and sane in this time? Like to see that 7,000 people are trained and 9,000 are leaving each year. You just like, obviously you look at that and you go, okay, massive issue here. Let's get to the root cause, right? Yeah. So I I like to uh, share this visual because I think it just demonstrates it really well. So home care is like imagining that you're a Uber driver. Let's say you have to do 12 rides that day, but instead of getting the alerts along the way, you get a schedule of these 12 rides that you have to complete that day without really accounting for things that go wrong, something that happens with one of your rides, perhaps there's traffic. It's like that every single day. So you check your voicemail or you check your email the day or two before, and then you go out in the morning with this pre-planned schedule of 15 to 30 minute rides. And so the question is, you know, what could go wrong? (laughs) Everything, it's people, it's the world. Yeah. And yet, you know, we live in this age where we have so much technology at our fingertips that we don't often leverage, especially in healthcare. It's nothing complicated. For us, it's just things like thinking about things like geofencing, thinking about things like GPS tracking, thinking about things like leveraging text message technology to provide a channel to communicate between care workers and families. Just really basic stuff that we're already all used to. I think the other thing that has been really interesting for me is that, you know, we have this huge assumption in healthcare that, oh, well, there are many people who are not comfortable with technology. And so we have to make sure that what we're doing is inclusive, which is absolutely right. We have to provide a phone call option at all times, right? Always a phone call option. But as soon as you have that, I think people would be surprised by how comfortable people are with technology. Grandparents, they FaceTime their kids, their grandkids all the time. So we're not asking them to do something that they don't already know. We're just presenting it to them in a format that they're comfortable with, that they already use. Certainly, we've learned a lot of our assumptions are wrong during COVID, right? Where all of a sudden, you can trust people that are at home and everybody's getting on Zoom calls and figuring out how to do breakout rooms. And it's like, it's a thing. But there's still, I mean, I imagine in some of the remote communities you're in, we've, we've heard a lot these days around bandwidth and broadband and, and people being even more isolated now with the digital divide. Obviously, there continue to be issues like that. But to your point, the layering of potential services to make it easier. It also makes it way cheaper to service families. And I think the elephant in the room that we often forget to talk about is unless we can figure out how to make service delivery a bit more financially viable, we're just flat out of money. Like, <laughs> you know, like we, there's not enough money based on how we service people now. So we really have to rethink how it all works in order to make sure that we service the whole. I think the other challenge is that in Canada, you know, we have this assumption that like, hey, you know, don't worry, healthcare is free. Anything that happens, the system has your back. And that's also a really challenging narrative that I think is hard for someone to stand up and say, hey, no, that's actually not the case. But I actually think that there should be more awareness around that because if people were more aware about the costs 
that they have to take on in the event of an accident, something happening, critical illness, or let's say just with aging in general. Like if they, people were just more aware of the types of costs that we do need to take on, we would do a much better job in planning for those events too. Tell us a little bit about your model, like how it's different than, so here's how the existing system is and here's what we do differently. Like I, I get this concept of the human experience, but how did you even get the matching for an indigenous woman who needed care in her community to find that, like, how did that happen? So our economics is really simple. So we work in the same system as every other home care provider, which means that there is a pre-approved bucket, whether that's money or hours, usually on a monthly basis, and we deliver against those hours and that budget. What we do is we charge less and pay people more because of the operational efficiencies that we found by just using some basic layers of technology. And what that means is that if you pay people more and you empower them to have a more meaningful relationship with the family, turns out they sign up to work with you in droves. (laughs) And then on the flip side, if you charge less and there's families who are really struggling with making the budget that they have work for them, then they want to switch to another provider because they could get more hours. That's how we started. Very simple. Yeah. Yeah. Appealing (laughs) to both sides exactly in that way. It's only been just shy of two years. We have 13,000 frontline workers on our platform. We've serviced hundreds and hundreds of families to date. And are you cross-Canada, Ontario-focused? Definitely, we have plans to roll out nationally, but right now we are just operating in Ontario. And how big is this chat, like the size of this quote unquote problem? Like, what's it going to take to actually transform our healthcare system? I mean, I really hear you on we don't have enough capital to do it the way we're doing, but there is enough capital if we reorganize it and use resources in different ways. I'm assuming that's the case. Yeah. I mean, I have some perhaps more let's call them radical (laughs) suggestions. Really, we have to go back to the family unit and the community as one of the main places where someone gets care. Instead of always thinking of, oh, we have to send someone to provide all of the care that this person needs, which we know is not true anyway. We know that predominantly most of the care being provided is through what we call unpaid care. And that caregiver stress and burden is massive. And also, you know, women are disproportionately impacted by that because often women in the family take on that role. They have to quit their job or work part-time or what have you to make that capacity as well. Well, what if we just incentivize people to take care of each other? Like, like as an example, right? Like intergenerational living was really the norm, really, until recently. <laughs> For me, personally, an interesting thought would be things like, well, what if you provided a tax break for families who did live in a multi-generational way? Because we know that that means that when things happen, there's more people to support that person through whatever they're going through. Things like that, that where we think about, okay, well, let's look at all of the resources that are available and think about how we can support it as a whole. I think it's really that level of thinking that will help us through this crunch of, you know, not enough money, not enough people, not enough everything. I feel that way a lot about demonstrating our CEO model out in the world because I'm kind of like, money's a thing, but it's not all of it. 
And there's just so much more that comes in when a customer, when someone comes along and someone brings a customer and someone brings an introduction and someone brings expertise and all the other kinds of capital besides financial capital that have been kind of designed out of the system. Like we just monetized every single thing we can to try and make money off communities. And I, I love this idea of designing from the community out or the family out, which maybe needs a new term. And then we just do that blanket across the whole planet. How about that? <laughs> and, and I think the beautiful thing about this is that that's how the world worked for a long time. So we have lots of evidence and we have lots of stories and lots of wisdom and lots of practices that were already built around this that we just need to perhaps modernize. But that's it. It's stuff that we've tried before. It's not like we had to make up this whole new thing that we can't possibly imagine how people would take <laughs> care of each other. I mean, what? Yeah. Yeah. I, I remember, so my husband and I, we're both quite adventurous people. So we went to Papua New Guinea for our honeymoon. We were staying at this one village. I remember there was just randomly like a young kid, like under five years old, just showed up at this house. And then we're like, oh, you know, whose kid is this? And they're like, we don't know, just a kid of the village. And, and I thought to myself, that is so beautiful that this kid can just roam around and come and have a meal and just randomly leave and no one has kept track and it's just all fine. <laughs> yeah. And, and now it's just so, oh my God, we've like worried people and put them into fear about what happens in their communities. That, yeah. I have a brother, Mark, who everyone knew my brother in the little village where we grew up because he would just show up at their house and he'd be like, hi, I'm Mark. He's like this most, you know, totally extroverted little kid. And when he was three or four, he'd just like go around to people's houses. And they're like, oh, you're Mark's mom. They would say to my mom all the time. She used to tell that story and we'd laugh. But yeah, that's not that long ago. No, it's not. What can we implement to support community-like models of caring like that? And how can we introduce safeguards to definitely keep people safe, but still provide enough flexibility for the community to essentially take care of itself? I love it. If I'm out there right now, like who is your classic person who's calling you each day saying, can you help us? What does that inbound look like? Often we're not the first call. We're often the second or fifth or sixth call because you know we're a newer player. So I completely understand that comfort level issue. And often most of our referrals come in because they haven't been able to find care. The conundrum is no care or got care. <laughs> Often, we do end up servicing a lot of rural geographies and more remote communities where often the person who is, again, already approved for that care amount, they have gone weeks or months without it. And they've just figured out a way between family and friends to sort of patch it and make it work. Some people have also moved to a different area that has better coverage. And so those are the types of clients that we often service. I'm so grateful for you. First of all, I want to say thank you so much for doing the work that you're doing and for being creative in your solutions and using technology, but also just a deep sort of heart-centered approach to looking at this and rethinking it. So thank you for the work you're doing. I know it's tough. If you had a magic wand, which you do <laughs> because you're Chenny, <laughs> what would you like to see happen? What are we going to look like in the near future? If I had a magic wand, the simplest thing that I would like to do is to help bring more awareness to Canadians about our healthcare system. Like I said earlier, what they have to pay for, what they don't have to pay for. Have that be an actual educational experience that people have to go through. Because I do think that 
often people are surprised and being surprised when you're having one of the worst days of your life, it's just not a good thing. This is not what we want people to have to go through. It just doesn't make any sense. We can lean on our other relationships, like our relationships with our financial advisor at the bank or what have you, to be able to just better plan for what happens when we age. Because right now, there isn't a lot of that happening. By having that awareness, people will start demanding for change. I trust in the collective, I suppose. I also think more people who younger founders will want to work on a challenge like this as well. I think right now there's just really not enough information out there about what the problem really is. All right. Well, thank you so much for what you're doing. And where can we find you? The easiest way to reach out to me is on LinkedIn at Chenisia. And if you want to message us at GotCare, you can send us a message at support at gotcare.ca and all of our messages get responded to within 24 hours. Thank you so much, Jenny, for all that you're doing. We're so proud to be supporting you at CEO. Thank you for providing the space for ventures who want to think differently, the permission to do so. So I appreciate that. Thank you for listening to the CEO.world podcast. If this conversation resonated with you, please share it with a friend and subscribe on your favorite podcast player. If you'd like more information about SheEO, please visit us at SheEO.world. That's S-H-E-E-O dot world.